Welcome to the Science of Fiction. Uh, I'm Will Thompson. Today I'm joined not by Andy, who's absconded to North America, but inst- but with me, not in his place, in a different place, but it's a wonderful place, <laughs> is Trevor Wood. Hello. You may remember Trevor from the season two show, I think? Sounds about right. On mad mathematicians. Yeah, and, and a bit of mathematics, but mostly mathematicians. Mm-hmm. But so today, um, Trevor has appeared to talk about, um, well, economics and game theory, maybe some tulips. Tulip mania. Tulip mania. Yeah, um, various things. I'm hoping that this time, I I think last time on the show, I may have said something about the prisoner's dilemma, which you corrected me on. So I'm going to, we're really going to talk about what the prisoner's dilemma really is uh, this time. As opposed to what it is not. Um, So as ever, if you want to um, write in during the show, you can email studio at camfm.co.uk. You can text CAM plus your message to 80809, which will cost you 10p. Or if you're listening online, you can just type into the little form on the player and your message will reach us. Anyway, back at you after this. Welcome back to the science of fiction. Or the, the dismal science of fiction, as economics is sometimes called. Uh, that last song was The Hives with Supply and Demand. I think, that, yeah, they, they, they drove the point home quite well with the final chorus. There was no mistaking what that song was about, though. No. Well, yeah, I guess the, the subtlety isn't really The Hives' uh, 
purpose in life. I think they they have a new album out, but if you have the old one, you could just play that again. I think that would do pretty much the same the same job there. But imagine slightly different words. Slightly different words, yeah. Anyway, so first up, um, I'm basically ignorant, and I I kind of get that game theory is not just board games. It's 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 if anything um, far, far simpler than that. So uh, the original game theory was uh, was a theory by von Neumann. Uh, who was a Hungarian-American mathematician. Uh, He did uh, work in about 30 or 40 different mathematical fields, and just one of the things that he tried his hand at was game theory, where he was trying to explain uh, what he called parlour games, the kind of games where... uh, zero-sum games, where for everything that player one gains, player two loses. And he worked on some theories for the way that you could minimise your maximum loss. So... Okay, so... so strategies you could use to if, presumably this is in the context of gambling in your parlor exactly and so, and so, so, so ways that strategies you can use to ensure that, if not ensure that you'll win but ensure that you won't lose your house you might just lose you know a beer or two that, that that's exactly it so so what makes it difficult is that first of all you have to think of your move what you're going to do next but then you of course have to think about what the other player is going to do but then you have to remember that he's thinking about what you're going to do and this can go backwards and forwards lots of times so so potentially it's, it's, it's quite complicated but he found a way that you could Go into go into the parlour without, as you say, thinking that you're going to lose your house in some complicated scheme. And presumably, these strategies still work even if all the players are using them. Uh, they're, they're designed to work exactly when when all the players are using them. So you you really can't can't be beaten. But uh, to my mind, those games are not the most the most interesting ones. I think when the theory really took off was when John Nash wrote his uh, his PhD thesis. Um, he, John Nash, uh, for anyone who isn't aware of hundreds of mathematicians, is most famous for being the character in A Beautiful Mind, played by uh, Russell Crowe, who we talked about last time I was on the, uh, the show. But uh, So when he was uh, t- early 20s and writing his PhD thesis, he wrote two of them. He wrote two PhD theses. And the first one is, was... Is, is, that's a little... Um, did he submit both, or did he just write, write the two and present them to his supervisor and say, OK, well, well which thesis do you prefer? Well, he might have been minimising his maximum losses <laughs> because his 28-page thesis, and that's, you know, absurdly short, was the invention of, of modern game theory. And he was worried that his examiners might think it was a little out there. Oh, OK. So his backup plan was to write a whole different thesis. Uh, this is <laughs> pretty remarkable. But so in it... He looked at far more complicated games, not zero-sum games, games where people couldn't cooperate with each other, where there, you know, where there wasn't wasn't one given answer. A far more complicated range of games, and and perhaps the the biggest example of this is the Prisoner's Dilemma, uh, which we might hopefully have a chance to talk about later. So, like, you, you say that the, 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 these these um, so he, he, is, this is dealing with trying to find equilibria in systems. They're, they're, in fact, they're called Nash equilibria. So uh, so the the first thing is when you have a simple game, it's it's nice to know that there's one one position where everything just makes sense, and if everyone behaves reasonably, that's the position you'll end up in. So if everyone knows what everyone else is thinking, or at least everyone knows what the other players' positions are, you can still end up with exactly one position which everyone is inclined to choose. That's called the Nash equilibria. Okay, but it, it isn't it isn't necessarily the necessarily the best outcome for any individual person. It could be it could be one of the worst outcomes for every individual person, but it's the equilibrium by virtue of being a position where if everyone was in that position and knew what everyone else was was kind of thinking and trying to do, then it would make sense for no one to change. It would, no one would want to be the person that changed because it wouldn't benefit them. And if you can find a position like that, that's an equilibrium position. And what John Nash showed in his 28 pages, which is about 
one-tenth as long as my thesis was, is he showed that in, any, in a whole bunch of systems that you always end up in the Nash equilibrium. As long as everyone behaves reasonably, you always end up in this equilibrium. Not, not in every system, and of course, most, in most systems, you can't assume that everyone behaves reasonably. That's, that's the thing. When people start behaving unreasonably, then, then mathematics is, is maybe still, still stumped there. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm reading um, a novel by Stephen Baxter at the moment called Ark, which is the sequel to uh, Flood, which deals with the whole planet flooding mm-hmm. and, you know, humanity trying to survive. But in, th- in that, well, the, the, the thing that thing they keep coming back to is that people have to make decisions which are good for the human species but not necessarily that good for almost literally everyone on the planet because if you're if you're running out of land land area and everyone's going to drown then your contingency plan is not going to be able to save everyone that that might still be an ash equilibrium but there's probably an ash equilibrium well the the, what the equilibrium is everybody has drowned or well, when we talk about the prisoner's dilemma, we might see a case where it's it's maybe a little like the case where everyone drowns, but it's still the. In fact, we'll see we'll see a case exactly like that maybe later on. It's surprising. Nash equilibrium, very surprising mathematics. Of course, um, game theory is like one of its main applications is in a particular field of, uh, if not scientific research, but a field which I think affects us all rather more than we'd like it to.
97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm welcome back to the science of fiction that was as we realized during the song they don't mention any any words in the whole song no uh, <laughs> wall, wall street by battles Supposedly they had the whole song written without a name, and then you know they would think they, they, they I guess they were angry that day or something, and said, "Oh, let's call it Wall Street." Was this during Occupy Wall Street? No, it would have been before it, I guess. Probably just before. It's been it's been around a while. Anyway, anyway um, there's an obvious, probably obvious direction we might take playing a song called Wall Street, namely the uh, Wall Street films. Well, Wall Street and its sequel, Wall Street Money, Money Never, Never Sleeps. Sleeps. So in in uh, in a scene that you might remember if you've seen Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, uh, Gordon Gecko is telling his protege about a particular crisis that happened in Holland in uh, I've written down the year, 1636 to 1637, where the price of future contracts to buy tulip bulbs rose by about 10 to 20 times the previous value. So, so the, 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 but this this is true, right? This is absolutely true. You can look it up on, on Wikipedia. It is called, and this is absolutely true, Tulip Mania. I mean, I, I like tulips as much as the next guy, but, you know, buy, buying... I suppose people do buy futures on plants. Why not? But... It is it's reasonable that they would buy uh, futures in tulips, but what's what's surprising is that it wasn't that there was a big frost that, that killed the tulips, because if that had happened, people would have just bought different flowers. The reason that the price went up and up and up was because the price started going up, and everyone believed, well, the price is going up, that's a good investment. It's good to buy something where the price is going up. As everybody knows, prices always go up forever. If they start going up, they can never come back down again. And it seems to be that that's what everyone believed. And so the, f- the price inflated to uh, f- about about 16 times the, uh, the, the the baseline price of tulips. And this and is in the space of a year? In, in the space of, of a couple of months. Wow. And it remained at the top level for, for also an, another couple of months until some realization sunk in that that wasn't what tulips were worth and the price just crashed down uh, right to the level that it that it was before uh, so this is i think the first recorded example of a bubble and the, and the government stepped in to the, the dutch government stepped in to make sure that the people who had foolishly bought these contracts didn't then have to go on and buy the tulips for the full price so uh, if, if you want to draw your own parallels with recent events that's entirely up to you yeah, far, far be it for us to make political co- commentary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Although, although many people have used that exact um, event for political commentary, when the South Sea Company bubble happened a hundred years later, a lot of the satirists of the time mentioned the the tulip bubble to uh, to remind everyone of the uh, the dangers of speculation. Huh. Um, of course. Yeah. So I think bubbles are kind of taken as red. There, I mean, the, the dot com bubble is a kind of accepted event, right? Well, so there are some economic e- economists uh, who believe in the efficient market hypothesis and don't think that there are any bubbles ever. That. Yeah, seems demonstrably false. Well, they, 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 for example, about the the tulip mania, they would say that it was a long time ago, and there isn't enough data, and maybe there's been some exaggeration of the story, which is which is possible. But I think with the dot com bubble and the you know the, the the subprime bubble, I think their position has got kind of weaker in, yeah. in recent times. So, so as a, as, a, as an anecdote, apparently, uh, so there was the SpaceX launch, uh, one of the first commercial space flights. I think they were trying to go to the International Space Station. This was on the news very recently, wasn't it? I think it was yesterday. Yeah. Um, someone pointed out that um, the entire history of the com- of the SpaceX company, including the rocket design, testing, and the launch, cost less money than Facebook paid to buy Instagram. Which, not that I'm saying there's a second tech bubble happening or anything, but it does look an awful. It does look a bit strange that you know sen- sending. 
canned monkeys into space is cheaper than buying a, fo- a photo network. A, f- a photo network where you can put a slightly different tint on the photos. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the network they're buying, <laughs> not, not, the, not the tint. Yeah, but, okay. But yes. It's it's an interesting perspective, but do these? I mean, presumably these economists do believe in you know bubbles from the wire and bubbles from the Powerpuff Girls and other characters called bubbles. No, they don't believe in any bubbles at all. Oh, okay. Even that they think that the the thing in the pot is just an illusion. Right, that's not true. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and their bars are really boring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But no, the, the um, I guess the. there's there have been sort of, sort of recent like surprising stock market crashes caused by. An over dependence on computers trading for us. Well, th- well, that's that's another slightly controversial topic. There was an event called the Flash Crash, which uh, maybe people in England are less aware of because it happened on the same day of our last general election. But uh, what happened was that ten uh, percent got wiped off of the value of the American stock market in the course of about four minutes. Wow. So I don't know how many trillions that is. Uh, se- several, I suspect, vanished in in about four minutes and then came back in the next twenty minutes. Huh. So no one has really adequately explained it, but I think that it's kind of read that um, the, the, the high-frequency automatic computers trading with other computers very, very quickly is largely to, to blame for that. Charles Stross, who is a prolific author of both fiction and in- interesting blog entries about you know, new economic, economics and so on, um, claims like slightly as a joke that you know, if we're waiting for you know, aliens to invade and take over our, 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 you know, our lives, they kind of already have. Like, our economy is controlled by in- these inhuman systems that we can't, we, kind of, we, can't, we kind of very tenuously control. We set them loose and then they just do their trading stuff. But we don't really understand how they work. Well, I mean, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're the person who, who codes it, you, you become worried about how it's going to behave. I know there are companies that do the high-frequency trading where they are concerned that when they hit the enter button, because it's trading, you know, a, a million or whatever it is every, every second, they're worried that their company might be bankrupt before anyone has seen what, what happened. So this is a real concern, the, the, the remove, removal of the human interaction. Yeah, and Strauss took this a bit further in um, his novel Accelerando. He had... Um a bunch of one of his characters wants to hide some of his um, his uh, intellectual property uh, assets, so he sets up a network of two to the power sixteen companies, um, all, 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 all numbered. And he, because companies are people in various jurisdictions, these companies can be each other's CEOs and COOs and CTOs. So they have the three three members that they needed for the board, and then they all own each other, but they constantly trade. Um, in each of the shares to make it really, really hard to fight, pin down. He, he, like he, the, the human, ultimately owns some of one of the companies. Um, but then there's this huge mesh of companies, and then one of the other companies, which ultimately he owns, but it's very hard to prove because you have to prove it with humans, and you know they aren't humans. Owns the assets he wants to hide. Well, it, it was exactly those kind of uh, cross interactions and the tangled web between the banks that is possibly responsible for some of the the subprime bubble. Huh. Well. Speaking of bubbles, let's... let's right, I'd just like to, uh, we'll, on the topic of bubbles, we think that Vera Lynn might have a view on this, and I'd like to dedicate this song to my dad and Craig. Like my dreams 
Welcome back to the Sounds of Fiction, and that was "Forever Blowing Bubbles" by uh, by Ve- sung by Vera Lynn, but it has a a, um, a connection to some sporting events of the weekend. Um, okay, uh, we'll leave it. We'll leave it uh, at that. about which I know very very little, <laughs> and I don't know that m- that many of the listeners are, uh, n- would know either. Reasonable. Well, listeners, if you, if you'd like us to talk more about bubbles and sports, and you know you know any, I guess, I guess there is a whole you know sporting economy. Uh, any any listeners particularly keen to. Um, Oh, well, as we were just saying, um, the, the, my, my team West Ham won, won the richest match in football uh, yesterday. They say that ninety million pounds goes to the winner, so that's uh, that's some serious money. It's yeah, it's and must be quite daunting, I imagine, to realise that this that this amount of money re- rests on not on your shoulders but on your ankles and feet. <laughs> yeah, no, and acquired, which is which is why they get paid paid so much, I guess. Yeah, I guess could so. Be gone in, could all be gone in a moment. Well, speaking of large amounts of currency, um, I guess we, we, we're going to lean towards the actual currency itself that's involved in all, all these economic systems. Um, so, you know, right now, I guess everyone really uses you know currency backed by you know, it's, it's fiat, fiat currency, right? Backed by there, there's no gold backing most currencies, and it's always kind of you know, anymore, sh- no. shared ideas, but all with a central authority. But there's this novel by uh, Cory Doctorow or Doctorow. I'm not sure how you say his name. It doesn't. Yeah. Anyway. Um, who mm, some listeners might know as one of the editors of Boing Boing, um, it, t- titled "Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom," um, where the, it's it's a kind of like post scarcity world, where you know humans can back themselves up, blah 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 blah. Um, but t- traditional currency has been abolished in favour of this um, concept of waffy, which is kind of your reputation. So when you help someone out, they they give you some of their reputation to say thank you. And conversely, if someone wants to mess with you, they can take your waffy. Um, and then, but your waffy balance, if you like, is kind of public knowledge. So people judge each other based on, you know, 
query, no, not based on their immediate appearance, but because thanks to the technology of this fictional future, uh, they can see people's Wafi scores above their head if they want to. They kind of do judge people um, based on this reputation score. So it's the it's the logical extension of conspicuous consumption. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, there, there are people who sort of walk down the street, give, you know, giving out Wafi, literally, you know, give, giving away good reputation. Um, at, you know, at, you know, slight cost to themselves, but of course the uh, yeah the the it, it depends on a world where you don't need to play, pay for sleep and food and healthcare and so on because otherwise you know someone could come along and you know I guess yeah rob you, rob you of your reputation um, and you know and if everyone agrees that you know if people disagree with someone who's you know decreased your reputation they can give you some back of their own um, but of course if you, if you become unpopular your score plummets this reminds me slightly of um, uh, a film I saw recently called uh, In In Time uh, with Justin Timberlake and someone where the currency in this particular film was was time that you would have left to live. Did you Did you see this one? I didn't. So, 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 they, so they trade in. They, they the, the the economy is advanced so that no one no one needs to die anymore. For, they all they stop aging at twenty five I think or, or twenty six and at that point they have one year left. But of course they can work and that gives them gives them more time. So but, one, but, but presumably. That time has to come from somewhere. It's it's a way of preventing the population from exploding. This is the 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 system's way of making sure that there's enough resources to go around. But um, one one of the, one of the ways they get it across quite well in the film is that all the poor people are always rushing around and doing things very quickly, and all the the rich people kind of lounge around at dinner, like just um, you know t- taking life more slowly. It's, it's quite effective. Oh, but, oh, of course, because because they, they can they can afford to to, to to literally take it easy. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, but um, but like like many like many sci-fi uh, films and books, the, the the execution in the film isn't as good as hearing the concept of it is. So I I couldn't quite recommend it. But it's an interesting idea. So a better idea than a film. I- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, yes. Yeah, Down after the Magic Kingdom is pretty good. It's actually available uh, for free under a Creative Commons license, which I guess is kind of relevant because he's you know this this man is a professional author and writer um, giving away his written works for no money uh, um, sheds a new light on the on the, on the, the, the writing doesn't it I suppose I mean it, to a certain extent his his income is dependent on his own reputation people people mm. pay people pay for his books even if they don't have to um, or you know they pe- people contract him to write articles on and give talks on the basis of the reputation that he's, he's built up by by his good writing in the past so I guess he's, he's slightly implementing his own currency <laughs> as best he can within the current framework that's interesting but there's a more sort of literal implementations of new currency, which has happened on and off. The, the, the latest big one is Bitcoin. Yes, this is this is a very interesting thing, isn't it? This is a, a, a fabricated currency where having the currency depends on cracking a cryptographic scheme to unlock the new bits of the currency. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's that's about right. I mean, it's. It, and there's an algorithm for determining, you know, how difficult the task has to be, which is based on a Poisson distribution uh, and, and and time since the currency was created or something. So this is to prevent inflation. It's that the, the, the cryptographic problem gets harder and harder the more currency has been released, is, is the, the crux of it. Yeah, the, the, there, there's a hard limit of how much currency will ever exist. Um, and the amount of currency which actually exists asymptotically approaches that. Um and it's, it's, it's all based on spending uh, computer time uh, on trying to crack these puzzles, uh, which are designed to be extremely hard to crack. 
and the the cryptography that makes it hard to find the new currency is the same scheme which keeps a track of all of the currency so by by mining for the currency you're also propping up the system which means that no central bank needs to print notes and transactions don't have to be monitored that's the fundamental idea behind it i think and, uh, and one of the interesting things about it I, that I learned while t- trying to make sure I un- understood it is that the integrity of the system, I mean, it, so the integrity is based on other machines checking your working, basically. Um, but it depends on n- no more than just under half of the network being compromised. Uh, if someone controlled over half of the um, computational power of the Bitcoin network, then they could declare that their fraudulent um, record of, of transactions is the correct one. Um, so it, 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 if there's a dispute, it's majority rule. Um, so there's, a, there's actually now a kind of underground uh, network of people who control uh, botnets, which are infected computers, which can, can do work which their owners aren't wanting them to do. And these people, when when the people when the actual owners of the computers aren't using their computer, they they dedicate their CPU and their graphics cards to solving this problem to literally create money for the botnet controllers. And if this sounds, if this all sounds slightly fishy and weird to you, then I think you're probably sane. I think there are a lot of people that, that, that take this very, very seriously. But there have been uh, schemes for virtual currencies in the past. One that comes to mind to me is Beans. If you, if anyone remembers that from the early GeoCities days of the internet, uh, this is the same magical era that um, gave us um, Swatch Internet Time, where <laughs> uh, where all the, the moments of the day are measured in a th- you know in between zero and a thousand beats. Uh, it was just spelled dot beats. <laughs> uh, because, and you know, and and the time is quoted as at seven hundred and forty-one or something. It must have seemed very futuristic at the time, I imagine. Astonishingly, the um, the Swatch website promoting Beats still exists. <laughs> I don't think they sell watches which which give you Beats anymore, as as it were. But there's they, they're still there's still a converter online to tell you what time it is. Um, and the goal was that it meant you know it meant time zones stop being an issue. You just say we'll we'll, we'll meet in that chat room at seven seven hundred and forty one beats. Well, equally as successful and having an equally stupid Z at the end was Beans, the online currency. I I found out uh, today that they raised a hundred million dollars in in venture capital because I think a lot of people thought this was the next big idea. We wouldn't need money in the future. Um, how, how ironic that they're spending their money to not need money. Yeah, <laughs> but amongst other problems that they had, uh, the French government declared that it would seek to prevent uh, currencies like it from ever operating. Huh. Um, well, obviously, they, they took it seriously enough to say that, but I think this hints that maybe Bitcoins might come into a similar problem, whereas sovereign governments that have their own currencies might say, we don't want your silly internet money. Of course, the one place that Bitcoin came in particularly useful was when uh, the US government was putting pressure on um, payment processes to stop pr- processing donations to WikiLeaks. So WikiLeaks started accepting donations in Bitcoin, and Bitcoins do do trade at a you know, non-trivial um, number of dollars per coin. Um, and there, there have been you know big ups and downs. There been you know there, there was like I think a crash some time ago. I think I, I seem to remember it being as high as a hundred dollars a Bitcoin, and it fell to about about twenty or something like after, that. After after a few kind of high-profile break-ins where people's computers were hacked and they and they and someone just mugged them for their Bitcoin, and they didn't even see the mugger. They just came back to their computer one day and noticed that half their Bitcoin had gone. <laughs> That's another one. You can put whatever uh, security on your network, but if someone goes into your room and takes your computer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so the problem of, you know, yeah, how, how to spend this money, how to get it out, and it's surely only a matter of time. If, if, it, if it did catch on, world governments would not look 
kindly upon it. I think for now it's kind of a sideshow. I, I, I think that's right. And I think there are some real world locations that accept bitcoins in payment. I, I remember reading about a pizza place in America that would accept payment in bitcoins. But then there's, there's also a pizza place in London which delivers pizzas to your house on the back of a bike, a, a pedal bike. There's just this, this, this one guy who offer, operates a bicycle courier service from a you know particularly famous like, pop-up pizza place. So people will do anything online. Yeah. So what can you do? Anyway, back at you after this. I hear the train a-coming It's rolling around the bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Antonio When I was just a baby My mama told me, son Always be a good boy Don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing I hang my head and cry There's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free But those people keep them moving And that's what tortures me I apologise for that dramatic transition in uh, musical genre there. It was a bit anachronous, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but maybe we should, maybe we should remix uh, that, that last song, which was... Uh, Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash, and oh, maybe maybe people will be able to 
guess why we were seeing, uh, hearing a song about prison. Well, yeah, particularly people who were, li- who were listening at the very beginning of the show. Um, because, of course, the prisoner's dilemma is, um, has been hanging over us, as it, as it were. <laughs> so, uh, possibly the most famous piece of game theory was uh, John Nash's um, elaboration and s- solution of the, uh, the prisoner's dilemma. So, I think this is worth taking a moment to set up. So, uh, what you need to imagine is that you and a co-conspirator have uh, committed a crime, you've robbed a shop or something, uh, you've been caught and both put in separate prison cells... And now you're both going in to be interrogated about what's happened. So you both got a choice of you either say you didn't do it or confess. So if you both uh, if you both claim that you didn't do it, then you take away the evidence and you only stay in prison for say a month while they you know track down the other leads. So if you if you both deny it, then you you're out of prison in a month. And if you both confess then they'll give you some leniency because you've confessed and you go to prison for six months. But the downside is, if one person denies it and the other person admits that you both did it, that's when you're in a bad situation and you go, the person who's confessed can sell you out and get out of prison today, but you go to prison for a year because you denied it. Hmm. So those are those are the different options. So when you look at it, it seems like the best thing to do is for everyone to deny it, and then you're out of prison in the shortest amount of time. But of course, you can't communicate. You can't communicate. No, you you just all you know is what the other person knows, which is which is the same as you. So uh, so this is a, a tricky mathematical problem, and John Nash solved it with the idea of a Nash equilibrium. So if we think about that that case where you both say you didn't do it. The problem is, if you think about that, if you if you're in that position, can anyone gain from changing their their um, their answer? And the answer is yes, because if you know that you're both denying it, and you say, "Well, actually, I'm going to confess and sell the other guy out," then you walk free, and he goes to prison for a year. So it turns out that isn't the Nash equilibrium, because one person can unilaterally change, and and the whole thing is is, is messed up. But now think of the other point of view of what happens if you both confess. If both of you are confessing. It's in no one's interest to change their mind and then deny it. Hmm. So that is, in fact, the Nash equilibrium. So you end. So, 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 so the, the 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 only situation where it's in no one's interest to go to go ahead, go against the plan is the one which is actually it's not the worst outcome for both of them, but it's definitely not the best. It's 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 not the best for either of them, but it turns out to be the Nash equilibrium. And as John Nash showed, in cases where everyone behaves reasonably, that is the answer. That's the correct answer. That what that's what should happen. I guess. The, this, 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 that exact situation comes up a lot in you know in police shows. I've, I've re- very recently finished all of The Wire, which has been oh, a excellent TV uh, show. It's, it's been a uh, a str- struggle at times. It's been a you know, emotional roller coaster. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm glad to have got to the, got, got to the end. Very satisfying. Uh, though we wouldn't want to spoil it for, I think we could about <laughs> ten years ago. But at the end of series one, there's a character who does end up um, committi- uh, confessing to a crime that he didn't commit so that everyone else can sell him out. And this turns out to be what the boss has decided is, is the best solution to the, to the game theory problem and, and how, how everyone else gets off of the, the crime. So with, with plea bargains, this really does happen in, in, in American law. So, so, so people, um, I guess, on the basis that there's probably enough evidence to convict them for one crime, confess to a whole bunch of other ones because they'll get no additional, there'll be no additional ramifications to doing so. But so, but there's one thing that we didn't talk about with the prisoners, though, and this idea that if you're in a situation, the Nash equilibrium, if everyone is reasonable, is that you both confess to the crime. But what I didn't mention is that the same is true even if you didn't do the crime. 
So what Nash has showed is that um, it, you might be in a position where you're innocent, but the situation forces you to confess to the crime. And for this exact reason, the European courts do not have plea bargains, because of John, partly because of John Nash's discoveries in mathematics. Huh. That's quite interesting. That's, and and then there's, there was a couple of uh, sequences in the in the wire as well. Again, but coming back to the everyone acting reasonably part of the assumption, yeah. where um, the the police lie and um, they they tell someone that their their accomplice is in the next room confessing right now. When there is no there is no um, they haven't arrested the accomplice at all. And so and so they they trick people into saying that in, into confessing on the you know on the assumption that someone else has confessed too. That breaks the uh, that breaks the John Nash's assumption of perfect information, of course. So you might end up not in the Nash equilibrium, I suppose. So, so we just got a mail from um, Michael. I presume that's uh, M- Michael of uh, Burst the Bubble just before us, uh, asking us if we saw the uh, Golden Balls uh, video going around about this, uh, which we did. Um, so Golden Balls for anyone who's not a uh, exhaustive student of the uh, the works of Jasper Carrots uh, is a. <laughs> Well, what was a game show where I'm not actually that cl- that clear on the mechanics of the rest of the game show, but at the end of the show, there's two there's two um, players, and between them, they've they've they've, they've racked up you know, fifteen thousand pounds or however much money they've they've racked up. But they have to decide whether they want to um, share the money between them or try to steal it from the other one. It's it's you know the prison dilemma applied directly. Yep. So um, they get to discuss, and then they they both in secret choose which option they take. If they both say split, they, they get half each. If they both say steal, they get nothing. And if one says steal, they get all of it. So this is a great clip where one of the contestants, um, the first thing he says to the other the other guy is, um, "I can tell you a hundred percent, I am going to steal." Um, so what you should do is you should choose split, and then after the show, I'll give you half the money. Which is an unconventional strategy. I guess he he tricked him into thinking that the his his choice was the other one. That the only thing he could do, which gave him any chance of having the money, was to was to say split. And then, of course, that guaranteed he was going to say split, and they were able to split the money anyway. So it was a case where understanding just a little bit of game theory was quite helpful in a uh, in a, in a TV show. You but, should look that up on YouTube. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. It's really fascinating to watch, particularly to see how to see how the other contestant reacts to this. You know, this and, and the audience and the, the the host. And you know, he tries to reason with him, and the other guy just keeps saying, "Yeah, I'm going to steal it." You know, so it's really on you. It's up to you whether we lose the money or not. Um, it, there's a whole bunch of other ones which aren't anything near as captivating as that. Um, oh, someone has just uh, written in to say that um, they're revising for their um, official, official statistics um, uh, dis- disclosure control exam. And given that the marks are going to be moderate, um, moderated, sc- I guess scaled according to some you know, normal distribution, you know, this is a very you know, controversial way of um, marking papers. Um, if everybody um, agreed to revise to not revise at all, then they could make everyone's life much easier. That's, that's right. But the Nash equilibrium, because you're all mathematicians and statisticians, you all behave reasonably, and so uh, and so you will all, of course, end up studying to end up with the same relative marks that you would have done if no one had studied. Or at least complaining a lot about how much revision you're having to do, which yes. <laughs> seems, seems to be a big a big part of the. Uh, of, of the deal of being a student, but there's one other example of um, of uh, prisoner's dilemma. Uh, should we talk about that before or after a song? Um, yeah, maybe we should maybe we should lead into this, with this piece of music. So you can guess what it's going to be from the song. Yeah, see, if, if you can figure out what we're about to talk about, write in and let us know. Turn world to its own needs Dummy, serve your own needs Beat it up and knock speed Grunt, no strength The ladder starts to clatter 
fm.co.uk on air 97.2 and across Cambridge your Cam FM Welcome back to the Science of Fiction that was as once again the chorus made abundantly clear <laughs> uh, End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. And uh, if, 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 anyone, uh, if, if anyone got it or, or didn't, the reason is because an example of the prisoner's dilemma is the idea of mutually assur- assured destruction so this is, if we think of it like the prisoner's dilemma again, this is the thing where I think everyone would agree with the pacifist that it would be better to have a world where there were, where let's, let's say there's just two sides, you know, America and Russia, it's the Cold the, War. The world was a much simpler place when there were only two, there were two big yeah. sides. A, a scary place, but a simpler place. So, so we've got two sides, and uh, we're, we're all agreed that it's better if no one has any nuclear weapons. And that's the, you know, that, that, that's the best case. Um... The other case is that both nations have nuclear weapons, and that's not terrible because at least there's the idea that they both hold each other in check, so no one will use them because there's enough nukes that both of them would die. So that's the the second case. But now, the third case is that one country has all the nukes and the other country has neither. And it's not good to be the country with, with, with none of them because, of course, you can be made to do anything now. So that's the... At, at least in theory, in practice, there's the uh, you know world affairs where countries with lots of nukes try and stop other countries who don't have nukes building up a nuclear arsenal. Is a bit, it, it's if we think of America and the Soviet Union with their intractable political differences, it would be bad to be the one side that didn't have any nuclear weapons while the other side did. Or, or which had fewer nuclear weapons. I mean, this, it, this was a thing, uh, this was one of the plot points in uh, Doctor Strangelove, um, where... Yeah. Um, Russia had decided that its nuclear arsenal was too far behind America's to guarantee mutually assured destruction. Um, so they created a doomsday device. Yeah, they wanted they wanted to stop the the chance that they would be blown up by nuclear weapons. So they built loads and loads more worse nuclear weapons. Yeah. No, so yeah, not 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 good enough to target anywhere in particular, but but just good enough to just destroy the world. So so if we think of the Nash equilibrium again, in the case where no one has any, one side can start building them and then have all the power. So that's not the Nash equilibrium. Whereas in fact, where you both have the nuclear weapons, neither side can benefit from being the one side to unilaterally disarm. Yeah. 
So the Nash equilibrium turns out to be the case where everyone has nuclear weapons. It's kind of a, a case where the maths gives maybe an uncomfortable answer. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a subplot about this kind of thing in yet another Charles Stross series, um, the uh, the Merchant Princess series, which involves you know basically f- feudal warlords uh, via an elaborate sequence of events from a different universe steal America's nukes, not realizing that America has a lot more than six nukes, <laughs> um, which actually you know they, they think it gives them. Um, you know, a position of relative, you know, equality with the Americans, but actually, um, America doesn't necessarily see it that way because there's, def- there's still a definite imbalance there. Yeah. But yeah, and th- and, th- and I guess it it still means that there's still an incentive for people who have relatively little to lose to di- dive in and you know try and get just a little bit of power. I mean, like. Almost all of 24 that I've ever seen has been, you know... It is always one a person, chemical one weapon person. or a nuclear weapon that's gone missing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's only one. It doesn't have to wipe out the world. It just has yeah. to wipe out, you know, that stadium or that... Or Manhattan, that. In, in many films, I think, isn't it? So it's, in fact, it's always Manhattan, isn't it's it? A, it's, I guess it's the famous, you know, skyline and so on. But, yeah. Fortunately, we're not normally in, in that world. No, so I, I, on a more kind of prosaic level of solving games, I or, think we we thought we would go on on, on a lighter note. Yeah, we we have a tendency on this show to end on very uh, yeah grim um, messages. So let's have, let's have some lighter messages. Um, I, I remembered a while, a while ago um, being in a pub with two people who may even be listening, um, who were playing. Well, some people were playing Connect Four, and these two decided that what they would do, rather than uh, playing Connect Four, would be to solve Connect Four. Um, as I recall, one of them. Um, just dive straight in at solving the full game, but one of them started by solving Connect Two, and then trying to proceed by induction from there. Which, of course, I, I thought about that, and that doesn't work because the other person has the next turn, so you can't go from the one induction step to the next step. Another, yeah, I, another example from recent uh, films was Moneyball, in the sense that it was about trying to apply some mathematical theory to a real-world game to try and gain some advantage on the people who who didn't use maths and instead thought that instincts and human intuition were, were the best. Uh, so Brad, Brad Pitt was in in quite a good quite a good film about that. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder, like, like diving back towards um, the, the golden balls thing for a while. I do wonder to what extent people have actually solved the games that they try and get on the game shows of in a mathematical sense. There was, there was one case in the US where someone solved a game show by just watching very closely and noticing the random number generator was not random. But that's not really solving. That's finding the loophole. Um, I mean. It, it, do, are you know ch- chess playing computers and so on based on actually solving the games, or are they based on, or is this a case of game means two different things? Dra- drafts has been solved in the sense that a computer can never lose at drafts. Now they the, it knows exactly how to respond to every, every move. Another game show that's relevant here is um, what's it called with Noel Edmonds? Deal or no no deal. Whereas there is a solvable solution, but it depends on how much a person values security and safety. So, oh, so this, this, this comes back again to well, we haven't mentioned today. I don't think that, that money is actually a very poor um, unit of value to a person. It's it's definitely not linear. Uh, there was a, a paper called um, "Estimating Utility Functions." I think yeah, estimating utility functions in high stakes gambling, and if their data set was all of the international versions of Deal or No Deal, <laughs> and they used it as a way to figure out how people valued money based on the decisions they made when they were in the high stakes gambling situation. And, and, and by using the same game show as as used in different cultures and so on, That's they, a good they, point. They, they could um, ha- control the situation in which people were trying to figure out their va- yeah. the value of money to them. Yeah. Um, 
and I guess we work from there. Um, I think that's pretty much why I'm we're coming up to all we have time for um, yep. th- thanks for, com- for coming back on the show Cara. thank you very much for having me um, as some, some, some of you may have had the pleasure of seeing Andy talk before Doctor Strangelove at the Arts Picture House a few weeks ago um, and may remember that that was originally intended to be a screening of Alien um, well we, we've now managed to rearrange some things of course Prometheus is coming out um, very soon it's and, very good and on um, I have June the 4th written down here I think it might be June the 7th Monday the first Monday in June it's June the 4th as, okay June the 4th be with you doesn't work like that, does it? Um, at, the, at, the, at the Arts Picture House, uh, there's a screening of Prometheus in 2D, if that affects anyone, um, where you can see Andy and I talking about um, you know, some you know, parasites in real life and maybe some other things. Maybe some, some, stuff to, some stuff to squick you out a bit and also some stuff maybe to make you smile. So if you can come on to that, great. Otherwise, well, well one of us will be back next week with more science fiction. Thank you for listening.